0: The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. Last week, by reason of insanity, Deirdre Morley was found not guilty of murdering her three children at her family home in County Dublin. The 44 year old nurse was found to be suffering from a severe mental illness when she killed the children last year. I'm joined on the line now by Hazel Catherine Larkin, who can identify and empathise with the situation that Deirdre was in. Good morning, Hazel.
1: Good morning, Pat. Thank you for having me.
0: Now, last week, you decided to share on social media that you felt the same way as Deirdre did. You said it happened to you in two thousand and seven. Um, you tried to get help. there was none. Can you bring us back to that time?
1: I was a returned emigrant um with two children, so I had left I'd left Ireland basically as not much more than a teenager. Um, and relocated to the other side of the world. Um, I'd been married. I had two children. I came back. And I came back as an adult with two babies, essentially. And I didn't know which end was up, past. I didn't have... I didn't know how to navigate Irish society as an adult, which I know sounds ridiculous. Um, but it is very much how I felt. I felt that I looked like this. I sound like this. I have an Irish passport. Clearly, this is where I belong, so I should just... I should just know how things work. And I didn't. And when I say I didn't know how things work, I didn't know how to access health care. Um, I didn't know how to access housing because I, I returned with, with, with very little. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd left work um, where I'd been living. I, I'd left a, um, a violent husband, a violent relationship um, and brought myself and the kids back to Ireland. So I wasn't in a great state when I arrived mentally because this was like my second marriage that I'd left. So I felt very much like a failure at 31 and a half. Um, And I felt that I was just failing my children on a daily basis because I couldn't, in my own head, I couldn't get it together. I just felt that I I didn't have access to education. I I, I didn't have an education um, at that time. By an education, I mean I I didn't have a degree. So I felt that I, I couldn't get work um, I, I didn't have family support here um, um, for a number of reasons, so I was very much on my own with my children, and I felt very much that my struggle was my own. Um, and I had so I was dealing with complex post-traumatic stress. Um, I I don't say that stress disorder because I don't think it's disordered to have an extreme reaction to extreme trauma. Mm. Um, I was. I I had anxiety that that wasn't diagnosed until much later. In fact, it was only about five years ago that my anxiety was properly addressed. Um, And for people who don't know, anxiety isn't just feeling a bit nervous and if you have a lavender bath and a bit of a walk and a deep breath, you'll be fine. Anxiety manifests in an awful lot of ways. And for me, it would manifest in a, a, a critical voice that was constantly telling me that I was doing everything wrong, that I wasn't good enough, that I was a failure. I mean, literally, Pat, I would wake up in the morning and my first thought would be, oh, God, now I've woken up. That means I've got to do it all over again today. It being keeping going, staying alive, performing (laughs) what a normal life looks like. And it felt like such a hard job. Um, And I felt that if I had... um, that I, I had the children and my first responsibility was to them... But I felt that because they didn't have all the things that I wanted them to have, like a like a second parent, for example, or like um, material things, I've got to be honest, the fact that I couldn't materially provide for my children did make me feel like I wasn't doing a particularly good job. I felt that I should have um, and I I say this very heavy scare quotes, a better life. Um, for myself and my children, and I just felt that no matter what I tried to do, it was never good enough, and I was never going to claw myself out of the consistent poverty that we were living in, the consistent feeling of just letting my girls down at every turn, that I just simply felt I wasn't good enough. And they were the most, they are the most precious things in the world to me, and I thought if I can't get it right for them then I can't get it right for anybody. And do I even deserve them? You know, these are, um, the, these are the, the most The question right. of
0: um, your, your isolation, because you hadn't got family backup um, with two kids trying to get work, but then you need childcare and even trying to make friends having been out of the country for so long, I can almost sense the isolation that you must have felt, being totally alone and then not even knowing how to engage with the social welfare system, with the health system, with the places where there might be help available.
1: That's exactly it. You're quite right, Pat, because I had learned a different way of socialising when I lived away, um, it was very common to meet somebody and have a strike up a conversation with them and arrange to meet them for a coffee the following week. And I thought that was the normal way of going about things. And then I got back to Ireland and I, I, my eldest daughter, she was she was almost three at the time, um, and she she was um, in in nursery in in Montessori. And I remember meeting a woman and kind of maybe the third time I'd met this mother, I suggested, oh, why don't we go for a coffee? And she looked at me like I'd I'd ask. To you know, move into her house nearly, and I thought, oh, that isn't how things are done here. And then I felt very socially inept, and I thought, I don't know, I don't know how to be a grown-up um, in Ireland. So therefore, I'm failing the kids again. Um, and even in, you're right, it was even in terms of, of of clicking into how things should be done. If I had been. If I hadn't been Irish, I think it would have been easier because I would have had a Polish community or a Nigerian community or a community from my own background that I could have clicked into, who could have given me the heads up, which is what Some. happened when I lived away. I made contact with the, with the Irish communities where I lived and they told me how to do things in wherever I was living. Um, but now, I didn't were, have were that
0: you, Were you worried about asking for help? I mean, eventually when you knew there was such a thing as uh, health service and so on, hmm. were you worried... In case they would come at you and say, "Well, you're clearly not an, you're not a fit mother," we'll take your kids away.
1: Yes, um, because I had memories of my ex husband trying to use my mental health difficulties against me as a way to to take my my. At, at the time, there was only the, the one child, who, uh, to, you know, as, as a threat to take her away from me. Um, we had separated at the time and he was saying to, I, I, was, I was pregnant with my second daughter um, and he had said, he he called in social social workers um, where we were living to alert them to the fact that he didn't think I was a fit mother, that he, he said that I had disclosed a suicidal ideation to him before the baby was born, now quite a bit before the baby was born, not when I was pregnant with her. Um, But he said, oh, you've said before that that you've been suicidal. And I remember saying to him, well, yeah, because I was living with you and, you know, you you were abusive. So that was how I reacted to that, coupled with the the history of abuse that I have from from my childhood. So um, in the heel of the hunt, the the social services took it very seriously, but they spent time with me and my daughter um, and, you know, didn't find any, any, any lack or any want. Um, But I I had help where we were living. I was living in Southeast Asia and I had I had live in help. So I wasn't trying to do everything on my own. I had two jobs. I had to do the job to bring in the money and I had to be and I had to be mum. The housework, the cooking, the shopping, even I had I had somebody who could help me do that. So the so the burden wasn't as much and the stress wasn't as much. I do remember saying it to my mother once um, back, you know, we, we, we were still barely on, you know, kind of on speaking terms at the time. And I remember saying to her, I, I, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can keep going. I, 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 I think I'm suicidal. And she just looked at me and she said, but, but you have a house as if to say, well, the fact that I had a roof over my head, hmm. surely that meant that everything was okay. And I thought, God, maybe she's right. Cause she, she's raised six. You know, maybe that maybe, maybe I, 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 I just am. Really bad at at adulting. Um, now, I, eventually I did you did. Help. Yeah.
0: Eventually you did reach out. Uh, how mm. did that go? I mean, was the help there?
1: Unfortunately, it wasn't. Um, and and it was paradoxical, really, Pat, because my biggest fear was that the children would be taken from me, and at the same time, I was very much aware that. My other biggest fear was that um, was that they wouldn't be taken from me, um, and that and that we would all end up, um, you know, dying together. Um, so I, I did reach out for help. Yes, I did, and I remember it was a Friday um, at about four o'clock in the afternoon, and I rang the HSE and I spoke to a social worker. I, I didn't use my own name because I was frightened too in case in case, literally they'd send somebody around to take the kids from me, and then I'd, I would have no reason to keep going, because I'd heard horrible stories about how once your children went into care, you never got them back again, you'd never see them again. And I thought, but the only reason, but the only thing that's keeping me earthside, as it were, is the fact that I have these children, and I, and I want to do the best that I can for them. Um, but the response from the social worker was that they were closing at 430 Um and there wasn't anything they could do for me and if I thought I was going to hurt my children I should call the Guardi and she gave me the number for Garda headquarters in the Phoenix Park and I just thought that's ridiculous, that's no use to me I don't, I don't even live anywhere near the Phoenix Park like, I, I, it, it just didn't make sense and this sense of abandonment was quite acute but in a way it made me it, it kind of struck a little bit of defiance in me Pat, because I, I kind of thought well if I go and kill myself this weekend my girls are going to be left with people like that, and if that's the best that Ireland has to offer, I'd better kind of hang on for a little while and see if I can just keep going and see if I get better. Um, because of course I turned everything inwards and I blamed myself for 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 my mental ill health, for my reaction, um, for, for you know for my for my anxiety, for my own um, stress reaction to trauma. Um, but unfortunately, the, the, the flip side of that, path is that I did consider, on more than one occasion, um, killing myself and and the children. Um, and I and, can speak about the time, this now.
0: Y- Sorry. You know, the rationality of that mm. thought at the time, it's clearly, when you look back on it, it's not the right thing to do because life is all they have. Oh, and, no. you know, to t- take them with you, because you feared for what fists they would make of life in other people's care, um, you know, is not a rational thought now. But at no. the time, it appeared absolutely the right thing to do for you.
1: It completely did. And, and and that, I think, is something that isn't understood by the greater population, that a suicidal mind is a very logical mind. You know, we, we, we can rationalise our situation to ourselves and our... Um, And our solution, which is suicide, um, very, very coldly and very logically and very clinically to the extent where we think, well, if this is life, then life is crap. And I don't want this. And I don't want this crap for the people who matter more than anything in the world to me. I don't want my children to have to go through life if this is life, because I've gone through decades of Things not getting any better um, and things getting worse. And, and, and by things, I mean my, my self-esteem, my, my, my confidence, my ability to claw myself out of the darkness into some sort of light. God, even if it was candlelight, it didn't have to be sunlight, but just something to have, to have hope. And I think that was, that was a huge issue for me, that I did not have hope. I didn't have hope for myself. So therefore, I couldn't understand how there could be any hope for my children. And I thought um, that the most loving thing I could do was to end all of our lives. And I know that that is completely irrational. In in fact, to be very honest, that's the definition of a psychotic break, really, isn't it, Pat? Where you have, you know, if, if psychosis is not being able to see reality for what it is, then that was definitely a psychotic break. And I'm really just lucky that I'm here Uh, but I but it shouldn't be down to luck because because what happened was I I did manage to um to get through that horrendous weekend and I trundled along a little bit um and and I you know I I I spoke to my GP and I was put on a waiting list for um for mental health services but that was I don't know if I'm even still on that waiting list to be very honest and I'm, I'm only being slightly flippant about it I mean and and the and the problem is that the that the response to from the health services is, is six weeks when you are in crisis, six weeks of, or six sessions rather of of um, of therapy, and that's really not enough.
0: Um, so so how did you get the help, though, that, that uh, you know, you're here, so you got through it. I mean, did you get professional help? Did you yeah. somehow muddle through on your own? Um, were the services ultimately there for you?
1: No, services were not there for me. Um, I, I And I say it to you again, I do, it, it's luck that has me here and it shouldn't be. Nobody should be just lucky to be alive when they're suicidal. What happened was I, I did go... Um, I left my children with, with, with a friend about a year later when I was very critical again. And I drove myself to the hospital and I waited 26 hours before I was even seen by a doctor who at that time was more interested in making arrangements for his social life on his phone than he was in actually addressing the person in front of him. And I remember being quite caustic and saying, would you like me to come back or you have more time? Because at that stage I'd stopped crying um, and I think that, that also was kind of an affront to his textbook, as it were, because I wasn't presenting as how a, a suicidal person should look. I was being, you know, to my mind, I was being rational. I was being logical. Um, and I remember I, what I did was I, I, I was taken in um, to the mental health unit there for two days. But that actually terrified me, Um even more, I, I, I signed myself out um, and promised not to harm myself because I was, I, I was in a mixed ward and I have a history of sexual abuse and it was like totally the wrong place to put me. Um, so I, I came home and, and what I did was, I remembered I'd, I'd been at a, at a lecture a few years previously in Queen's University in Belfast and I had heard one of the leading experts in suicide and suicide prevention, Dr. Rory O'Connor, um, who is Irish but he, he works in, and researches in Scotland and he had said... Um, when it comes to a choice between life and death, choose life, choose life. And I emailed him, Pat. I mean, there I was, uh, you know, a blubbering mess of a single mother in my house, you know, in the middle of Ireland, and I, I, I sent an email to this highly respected um, professor in Sterling University, which is where he was at the time. And I said, look, I remember hearing you speak and I remember meeting you afterwards. And I remember what you said, but I just don't know if I can hang on. I, I, I heard you say emphatically choose life, but I don't know if the life I have is worth choosing. I don't know if I can keep going. Would, would I not just be happier dead? Because then I wouldn't have to keep going because nothing's changing. And God bless him. He wrote back to me, like within, within a matter of a few hours. And he said, I want you to hang on. He said, I as a person am asking you as a person to stay. And that is what made the difference, Pat. It was not being a statistic. It was not being an inconvenience. It was that, that I felt that another human being on this planet really wanted me as a human being to stay where I was, to just give it another bash. And I did.
0: Did you ever then get into a routine of professional help? Yeah, you know, which obviously you had to pay for privately, I, I presume, I and that worked clearly because you're here.
1: It it did. It, it, there was tremendous help in that, um, I, I, and I knew that I was going in for the long haul. And I, but but I had been in therapy on and off since I was about since I was in my teens, so I knew what I needed. And in that way, I was lucky because literally I I interviewed therapists for the position of my shrink Um, because I said, look, this is my history. This is where I am right now. This is what I'm bringing with me. And I need somebody who will commit to me for about two years because I knew that the therapy that I needed was going to take me at least two years of unpacking who I had become and finding out who I was at my core Um, And and keeping the pieces that were me and rejecting the pieces that were, you know, kind of had been painted on or the things I'd been told about myself that I was useless and and all the rest of it, Um, that they're not me and learning what they were and to reject them. I knew that was going to take a long time, but I also had a GP who put me on the correct medication and that made a huge difference. I I went to the doctor because I was having um, a lot of flashbacks to to the abuse, and I just wasn't able to get anything done, to be honest. I was having about 20 of these a day, and it was ridiculous. And I said, do you have anything that can just make them stop? And she said, yes, of course I do. Um, And I hadn't realized it, but once I was finally put on the right medication, literally within 24 hours, it made a difference to me. And my big regret is that nobody had seen that maybe 10 years beforehand. And I say it to my children now, who are 17 and 19, um, that they, you know, if, if I'd known, if somebody had put me on the right medication years ago, they'd have had nice mummy the whole time they were growing up. You know, because there were times where they weren't sure what mummy they were going to get. And I, and the guilt that I have over that, you know, the girl, we have a very open relationship, and they will say that they, that they don't hold me responsible, that they completely forgive me. But, you know, the big job is trying to forgive myself.
0: Why did you decide to speak out about your own deeply personal experience then, Hazel?
1: Um, Because I'm not the only one. And I think that the more of us who talk about uncomfortable, difficult things, the more people who will talk about uncomfortable, difficult things. And if one other woman had seen that and gone, oh, thank God, I'm not the only one. And it's possible to get through that, then as far as I'm concerned, that's, that's, that's a good day's work. That completely um, m- mitigates any discomfort I might have around exposing myself as somebody who was just a bit mad, um, or as somebody who did who, who did entertain thoughts of doing the most horrific thing, which is, to, you know, to, destroying my own family, um, because I thought at that time that that would be the greatest manifestation of the love that I have for them. But of course, as I said, that was psychotic. Like technically you know that, that that's not how you show somebody you love them but because i i was in that terrible dark space my my thoughts were that jumbled but that is the that presented itself as logic to me um and of course it's you know it's it would have been it would have been disastrous because i look at the girls that i have now and of course i'm biased because i see them with my heart and not with my eyes but you know they're fabulous and I would have deprived everybody, you know, every face they've put a smile on in their seventeen and nineteen years. I, I would have deprived that smile of that face if I'd, you know, if I, would yeah. to use very blunt language, if I'd murdered my children. But I came so close, and I was, and because I know how close, how close I came, I was really concerned that people might judge or vilify Deirdre Morley for the actions that she took. Without a, a deeper understanding of of how you can get there and how quickly somebody can get to that point, point. Um, and I, I I just wish that the services were there um, for people like Deirdre, for people who were like you know the me of 12 years ago, um, but also and I think that that her her husband um, Andrew McGinley has spoken to this quite a bit as well that we we exclude the people who love people who are mentally ill. Or mentally unwell from their care because of our concerns around patient confidentiality, and I don't think that's right. Um, you know, I I would have had one or two friends that I could have trusted um, with my reality, um, who could have who would have volunteered to be part of my MDT, if you like, my my multidisciplinary team, if I'd had one. You know, and and that I th- I think that there should be a possibility for people to to have um, um, advanced directives around their mental health where they can nominate sure. an advocate or, or nominate a concerned other who will be privy to the, the, the nuts and bolts of their yeah. care and what and, they need and, and, and how at, best to support them.
0: At the point when you're nominating that person, presumably you're not in any kind of a yeah. deep episode. So you can actually say, yeah. I'll probably... When push comes to shove, I'll, you know, say don't go near them. But I'm telling you now, at this point, no matter what I say, you've got to trust the person I nominate.
1: Oh, yes. Oh, that would be magical. I think that could, that could help so many families and, and not just around suicidal ideation, but even things like what, what medication a person is on and how many times a day they should be taking it. Because, again, that's privileged information. Um, and, and once you're, you know, once somebody is no longer a child, you have, you know, whether you're a parent or or a spouse or 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 a concerned other, you don't have the right to that information. Um, but the people who are there, living with people who are in difficulty, they are best placed to to mind that person and to notice when their mental health is having a dip, and to be able to step um, in and do something. And they should the be The last empowered. question. Yeah.
0: The last question, Hazel, really is about if someone were to arrive today from another part of the world as a single mother with a couple of kids and no great resources, would they be treated any differently today than the way you were treated, you know, fifteen years ago?
1: Um, sadly, Pat, I don't think they would. Um, in 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 my other life, um, when I'm not talking to people on the radio, um, I I consult. Um, with NGOs around the country, and I've recently done a piece of research um, with the Domestic Violence Centre looking specifically at um, the experiences of migrants, and they are quite similar in terms of just people not knowing what, what help is available, what they're entitled to, how to go about looking for help. That, that kind of very basic information is still difficult to access um, and, and again it comes down to luck and I really don't think it, it, it should um, because you can have a, a GP who is empathetic and who understands or you can have a GP who says oh look you'll, you'll be fine you just, need, you, know, you just need to exercise a bit more and maybe um, call your family at home more often than once a week or something that sounds dismissive but is an attempt to be helpful but again when we are outside of our homes even when we're in terrible crisis we've put on the face the mask, you know, well, in these days, literally the mask, but, you know, we, we present as our best selves and we try to hold it together when we're in public because there's still so much stigma attached to, um, to having a, a mental illness. Uh, and, and that was another reason why I wouldn't have wanted it known because I wouldn't want my children to have had to deal with the stigma of, you know, having had the mad mammy.
0: Well, I much appreciate, uh, Hazel, you talking to me uh, today because I think w- what you're saying may resonate, will resonate, certainly with a number of people out there who should know they're not alone. And I know your advice, you'd echo Dr. Rory O'Connor, you know, choose life. Choose that's life.
1: A- at the end of the day,
0: it. the fundamental message.
1: Hang in there. It's worth it. And, and more to the point, you're worth it. That, that, that human being that's struggling, you're worth the struggle. Keep
0: going. Well, if you or someone you know has been impacted by any of our conversation, you can contact the Samaritans. The number is 116123 or PA to House on 1 800 247 247. In other words, 1 247 247. And my deep thanks to Hazel Catherine Larkin for talking to us on the program today. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk.